Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I'm here today with Judy Deutsch, professor and director of the Rivers Lab at Rutgers University. Welcome, Judy. Thank you, Parm. I'm delighted to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Of course. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do there at Rutgers. So I am a professor here. I've worked here a very long time. I started working when I was a full-time clinician at Kessler. So I've been actually teaching in this program for over 30 years. And my role now is as a professor. Uh, I teach courses in clinical reasoning and evidence-based practice. And um, I oversee my lab. It's called the Rivers Lab. And it stands for Research in Virtual Environments and Rehabilitation Science. And um, we're interested in promoting mobility and fitness for persons with neurologic conditions. So we work with persons post-stroke, persons post-Parkinson's, and um, also older adults as part of our, our research. Our program has a pro bono clinic, a community participatory clinic, and in that clinic we have a, an exercise group that's called Synergy, and I serve as the faculty advisor for that group, and it's really run by the students, but it's meant to be a program that promotes physical activity and looks at balance and mobility for persons with neurologic conditions. And I'm, I'm involved with the students and supporting them as they do that process. So I really, I really enjoy that. Sounds like a lot of interesting and busy activities going on there. I'm a little bit interested in the um, work that you're doing in the lab in terms of the virtual reality you know, specifically sort of what kinds of virtual reality are you using? And is it anything that, you know, people can try to bring into their own clinical practice? Yeah. So, you know, for us uh, working in virtual reality, um, we've been doing it for over 20 years. And our focus has been primarily um, working with persons post-stroke. But in the last five or six years, we began to also consider applications for persons with Parkinson's disease. And I think the story in VR is that there's some cool things that work and they're expensive or they're not able to be accessible to the clinic. And then there's the off the shelf consoles that people have adapted. So we have a little bit of experience with both of those and we've, we've been working really hard to bridge the gap um, we've been trying to develop systems that could be brought into the clinic. So the system that, that we've been working with is really pretty simple at this point. It just is a bicycle and it has a, a sensor on the crank that reads how fast you're doing your evolutions per minute. And so now the virtual environment is interfaced with the bike and all it's reading is how fast you're cycling. And we've been able to create environments that use like visual cueing and auditory cueing and feedback as a way to help somebody increase their exercise intensity. So it's a relatively simple setup. And we've demonstrated that you can modulate cycling intensity. And actually, my student that worked with me on this project is Rosemary Gallagher. She got her PhD doing that work in our lab. 
And it was a really, it was a really nice project because in this work we, you know, we have to collaborate across disciplines. I have an engineer in my lab and Rose learned to work very well with him and we, we built an environment from scratch. And so where we're at now is just trying to figure out, can we implement it as a training modality? So once we've sorted that out, we may be able to actually bring this to the clinic. Right. And so when you, when you say that you're using, say, auditory cues, what specifically, what kind of cues are people hearing? Well, it's literally a metronome. So what we've done is that we've added the metronome sound to viewing yourself in the virtual environment to understand if, first of all, we weren't sure if they would compete with each other. If I'm hearing it and I'm seeing it, am I going to focus on what I'm seeing or am I going to focus on what I'm hearing? And sometimes when you do things in VR, they interfere with real world. But it turned out that when you combine the auditory cues with the visual cues, you got a better result. And the visual cue was really just an image of themselves essentially on the bike, biking at whatever rate they were doing on the bike. So we had a lot of uh, trouble figuring out what to do for the visual cues. Visual cues are usually perpendicular to your line of progression, right? If you put lines on the floor in the clinic for the patient to take a bigger step or to try to walk faster, they usually are perpendicular. But if we were like, we can't put that on the road because the road doesn't have perpendicular lines. So we just put regular lines on the road, like the middle of the road where you would see the road markers. Well, we would just put straight lines and essentially we presented them at a rate faster than the person was going. So the person actually received augmented information and they cycled at the rate of the cues rather than at their preferred rate. So they were able to actually increase their speed. And how did you measure the preferred rate just with no visual? Yeah, yeah. so we published a paper in JNER in 2016 that sort of goes over some of the details of this, but it's first they cycled at their baseline speed so we wouldn't have any presentation. And then reference to that baseline, we presented a virtual environment with no modulation, nothing. It was just a blank road. Then we added the auditory cues and then we added the visual cues. So we we actually did it very systematically. We added one cue at a time so we would know what the change would be between each one of the conditions. So even just adding the virtual environment made them go a little faster, but it wasn't nearly as fast as when you added um, the visual cues. And the best stimulus was when the visual cues actually changed color and they knew that they were going 20% faster. So they actually got feedback on how they were doing. So we also included feedback as one of our conditions. So it took a while to sort of figure out what works and doesn't work so that we can now build it so they can train for long enough time so that they actually get, you know, physiological responses. These were short bouts to demonstrate the modulation, if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah, it makes great sense. And it's it's, um, very interesting how, like you said, you approached it systematically, but I love that idea of of adding that feedback piece and looking at it without the feedback and then with the feedback, because we know, you know, for all of us, but particularly people with that dopamine depleted system, that getting that feedback is huge. And just having that external goal of like, no, that's, that's what I'm going for. And I know I'm hitting it and now I'm not. And, and sometimes I think we can take those ideas 
and apply them in a clinical setting, like on a new step, right? You can, you can set a pace on the, the newer ones. You can set a pace partner and that pace partner kind of does what you're talking about. It, it tells the person without you having to nag them as the PT that they're hitting their goal or they're not. So I love that idea of, you know, the changing environment. And I'm curious, and I don't know if we really know this yet, either in the neuro population or just the general population, but I would think that the more enriching environment of a virtual reality environment is going to make exercise maybe a little bit more enjoyable for yeah. people. I think, Parm, that's exactly the way we've been thinking. Like we've been thinking, essentially, we're just taking behaviors and processes that we know work in the real world and trying to validate that we can transfer them to a virtual environment because then we can leverage what the virtual environment offers us, which would be you know, offering many different environments to cycle in or then creating different conditions or perhaps creating a situation where you engage in some secondary task. Then, you know, the problem is if you like do it all at once, you have no idea what works. So we're very, very slowly putting it together. And, and actually the, where we are at now is that um, the environment that they practice in was just projected like on a wall for them. So it's what we would call semi-immersive. And now we're trialing it with a head-mounted display so that we can see what's the experience when it's fully immersive. Because the truth is, we don't really know what persons with PD are going to prefer. Right. So we're, we're very methodical, and we're slowly getting to the point where we can build a training intervention. So we'll see where it goes. You know, that's sort of our small project because we're interested in combining the movement control and the fitness. I mean, that's a really key part. And as you know, in VR, you, you also have to have the cognition. It's, it's a cognitive motor task, but we're also very, very interested in, the, in promoting the, the fitness component of it, so right. putting those three together. Yeah, and, and the fact that you used that flat surface and, and we're seeing improvements. I mean, that's something like, I, one of the clinics that I worked in at one point had a piece of cardio equipment with this big, for whatever reason, a big TV right in front of it. It was like really huge. And I was all excited when I toured the clinic and I started working there. And I, I don't know, maybe a month or two after I started working, they, they got rid of that TV. I'm like, what are you guys doing? But you know, my problem was I didn't know what to put on there. Like I didn't have anything that I knew or I thought, might really help people or or even on things like Nintendo and Wii where you're driving, you know, and you're the environment is going by you. I was like, could we do that? But I, I was never able to sort of figure it out and then the thing went away. That's too bad. They yeah. take your TV away from you, you know. But you know, I wonder if There's a lot of uses for that TV. I mean, you're right. I've just been describing something that we've developed from scratch, but obviously there's all the off the shelf games or what we call now serious games because we're adapting them for a serious purpose like rehabilitation. I was curious where that term came from, serious games. It, it really, it's used to describe uh, some, a game that has an application that's not recreation. So it could be a game for education or a game for rehabilitation. And there is, there's definitely some confusion with these off-the-shelf video games. Sometimes they're called active video games because you're moving and so you're not, you know, controlling them with a keypad or, or with, you know, a, a handheld controller. They've had a bunch of different names, but they sort of fall into the family of serious games. 
but I mean, when you, when you're talking about that TV, you know, that TV could be used for those, um, serious games. Um, and, and there's particularly in Brazil, there's been a lot of folks in Brazil focusing on figuring out what are the applications of those games. And they've looked at them. They've looked at them for feasibility. They've looked at them for safety. They've looked at them for balance and they've also looked at them for cognition. So there are quite a few well-written scientific papers offering guidance on how to use the games. And I'm talking about the games, some of the games in the Wii, but also some of the games for the Kinect. So, mm-hmm. and I, I participated in some of those studies with those guys, but I, I think that they've been pretty systematically trying to figure out how they can be used. And so that's definitely low hanging fruit for the clinic because it's yeah. a, a low cost, it's a relatively low cost investment. And I think now there's enough guidance. So we developed a resource called Connecting with Clinicians, where you can go online and you can see what all the games, um, what they look like and what they contain in terms of like temporal requirements and spatial requirements and cognitive operations. We try to do this game analysis so that if you as a PT wanted to use them, it would be easy for you to find them. Wow, that's that's fabulous. And that's a website that anybody can access. So, And we'll include that in our show notes. So. So people can have that. Yeah, because if you read a paper and you're like, oh, I want to try it, you can actually see what those games might look like if you don't have experience with them. It's really interesting, Parm, because we did a survey. Uh, Daniel Levac was the lead author on the survey, and um, we recently reported the findings at a conference in Israel. And when you look at what people are using, the majority of people or the majority of people reporting their use are still using the Wii and the Wii Fit more so than the connect and more so than anything else. The rest of the stuff is like little bits and pieces. So while there's all this interest and there is all this cool stuff that's happening, the reality on the ground is right now people aren't using that stuff. You have to be in a specialized center. You have to be in a place that has a lot of resources. Yeah. But I, I still feel strongly that these serious games can be adapted for PT and, and have use and have some evidence to support them. Yeah, and I think that also the potential for something like the Wii or the Wii Fit that people might have at home, it might help, you know, to get them comfortable using it or using certain aspects of it in the clinic and then sort of translate that to home. I mean, of course, you have to do stuff that's safe, but I know that particularly with older people, like my parents have a Wii Fit and you know, I think their grandkids might play with it more than they do, but I, I think they do get on it and they, they use it sometimes. So I think it, you know, it has that potential to maybe bridge into the home environment too. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting because, you know, when, when VR came into our world and rehab, a lot of talk was about home-based therapies and being able to do it at home. And I think now we're actually starting to see some of this stuff actually being studied in people's homes. So it's not just the promise anymore, but people are really looking to, are seeing that it's feasible. There was a study um, that actually compared the Wii to the Connect and looking at balance um, for persons with Parkinson's. And it was just really interesting to see how some of the games offered actually visual cueing and rhythmic cueing. And so it's like, if you look at the games, some of the stuff we want therapeutically is in them. So I think one of the key is finding the right game. But actually, if people just check articles, like this paper was published by Aviles in 2018, um, 
there's there's stuff there to help it make it easier for practice. So they had a table. They said, we picked these games. This is why we picked these games. And this is what was in these games. So it would, it wouldn't be so hard, I think, to implement it. Right. And I think that that's so important for us as clinicians, as we read things to recognize that like you're approaching this very systematically, like we talked about so that you can actually answer some questions. And, but the, but for somebody in the clinic, the question is more like, what can I take of it? Or what did they find at the, at the end of this, you know, what, are, what is the principle here that I could then apply? So sort of like, we know that that visual feedback helped them. So, wow, my new step has a pace partner. It's the same concept. I can use it. Is it virtual reality? No, but it's, it's that, that idea. And it's great to hear about all these resources in the virtual reality world. Cause I also think a lot of clinics, particularly like a few years ago, maybe five to 10 years ago, were buying this stuff because it was kind of the, the thing to do. Like I've, I've worked at several places that have had a Wii or Wii Fit with the balance board and it's, it just really wasn't used that much. Yeah. They're collecting dust somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Or they're packed somewhere in the back. Yeah. Yeah. They could revisit them if, if they thought it was useful. So I think the irony harm is that at the time they came out, there was very little evidence to support them. And there's always this lag between the technology innovation and the research helping you catch up. And so you have to use your clinical reasoning. You have to say, like you said, what's in the game? How can I apply it? Or how can I take some of these ideas from this study? And how can I gamify everyday therapy, right? I don't necessarily need to have the video game. Maybe I can just gamify therapy. I like that word, gamify. Is that like a new, it's, it's a new verb. Yeah, no, I definitely didn't coin the phrase. Gamification is, is uh, rampant. I mean, really, there's, there's so much uh, literature to show what that does in terms of engagement and motivation that people are trying to gamify education. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to gamify things that people ordinarily may not want to do. Mm-hmm. So definitely not my term, but it's a good term. Yeah. Well, and exercise, I think, fits that that absolutely definition of thing that you know most people don't really want to do. They think it's burdensome. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, it's all about reward and feedback and the things we know. I mean, we know all this stuff from mortal learning. I think we could use a little more play in our world. I like it. I think it's it's uh, good for all of us. But the other thing you should know is, you know, the largest clinical trial um, that has been done in VR has been, has been studied with persons with Parkinson's. And this was a study done in Israel. It was actually my former PhD student, Anat Mirlin, ran the study. It was six countries, and they basically had them walking on a treadmill with a harness and um, dealing with virtual obstacles and some cognitive tasks. And that was it. Um, and they dramatically reduced falls in the population and had some profound cognitive changes. That paper was published in Lancet. Anat Mirman was the first author in 2016. And they also showed some concurrent brain imaging work, which was actually done by another former PhD student of mine, Imbal Meidan. Um, and they, they, they showed that there was... Um, an upregulation of motor areas and a downregulation of frontal areas that might have been inhibiting movement. So it's a very interesting set of studies, but it's also just like profound, deep evidence to support using virtual environments for rehab in people with Parkinson's. 
And those are like interventions, right? There's also a whole other area where people are modeling a stimuli that can cause freezing of gait as a way of studying it. And VR lends itself super well to that. So there was a, a paper that I read recently, uh, 2018 by uh, Jordana Gomez. So they built this virtual environment, it's super simple, and they had a wide hall, and they had an, a regular sized door, and then they had a narrow door. And they, they showed that they could reliably reproduce freezing of gait in persons with Parkinson's who were known freezers. And I thought, wow, if you can do that, and then you can work with that person to figure out strategies to manage that, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. So, so there's other applications, I think. And that they did do with a head-mounted display. The, the Miralman study was also with just a TV on the wall. So there's a lot happening uh, with virtual reality and Parkinson's. So hopefully more of that will become part of practice as these things get a little easier to translate into everyday practice. Yeah, and I wonder if it's coming for, you know, like you said, there's been a lot of work in stroke and now we're starting to see more in Parkinson's, but I wonder if it's coming for other neurodegenerative or or neurologic disorders in general, like MS. And Yes, yes, there is also some work with persons with MS uh, related to rehab of gait for persons with MS. Now, there was like long ago, George Folk did a paper that was a case report in J- JMPT, I think. But um, but since that time, there's been um, there's been more work looking at it, and they've actually looked at gait rehab and also some vestibular rehab because persons with MS often present with vestibular health conditions. So right, you know, or comorbidities. So they've also um, there's also been some work looking at it from a vestibular rehab standpoint. Right. For people with MS specifically. Mm-hmm. And there are some there are some systematic reviews that you know somebody could access pretty easily to get a sense for where that literature is at. I just don't know it that well. Right. Well, I think this stuff is is very interesting and exciting, and you know, hopefully, something that um, our listeners can sort of sink their teeth into a little bit and and start trying to problem solve ways to implement some of these ideas in their own practice and in their clinic. Yeah. Particularly, you know, maybe we've inspired a few people that have those wheeze collecting dust in a closet somewhere <laughs> to figure yeah. out how to make those more accessible and, and utilize them a little bit. And, you know, if for nothing else to keep your interventions kind of interesting and change it up a little bit for your patients. Yeah. I actually really like your, your comment about your parents having it in their home. Because I think it's also a tool for socialization. Mm -hmm. I think that it allows for that interactivity with other people in your family. Um, And you mentioned grandchildren. I mean, I I think that if if it it was an avenue where you could have this social interaction with, you know, cross-generation in your family, I think it would be a very lovely tool for socialization that could then also help you with your movement stuff. So I think I think that these video games offer a lot more than just the movement re-education piece. There's, there's room for competition, for collaboration, for socialization. There's all kinds of behaviors that go around playing a game that could really um, be enriching. And if you could think about it that way, then it has some added benefit as a home exercise, you know, suggestion or activity. All right. So since you made that comment, I was, I wasn't going to divulge this, but I will. I have, 
been I have used a Wii Fit in practice before and actually competed with my patients oh, yeah. when they're on a rest break. I'm like, <laughs> we're resting. Why don't I get on this thing and try it and let's see who's better? And uh yeah, you know, it's uh it's it is fun and it adds it does, it adds that sort of social, it breaks down um that that sort of relational and, and it feels less like work really for both of us. Yeah. And there's honestly, there's volumes of research on collaboration and competition and right. how that can be motivating for some people versus others. So if you can figure out what you're, what the person you're working with is interested, competition can be a huge motivator. Right. So um, Judy, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is your involvement in the International Neurophysiotherapy Association and some of the more recent changes that have happened there. So can you explain sort of what that organization is, who's involved, and um, what these changes are? Sure. So the World Congress of Physical Therapy, the WCPT, has subgroups, and the International Neurophysiotherapy Association is one of those subgroups. And we then have countries who are eligible to be members of the subgroup. They have to have their own neuro subgroup in their country to be a member. So the Academy of Neuro PT is a member because they have the neuro specialty, you know, groups. Um, so the Academy is the member of IMPA. And so we have 19 of those members. 19 different countries that are represented. That are members. Um, so Brazil and South America, you know, Japan and Asia, all of the English speaking countries, Finland, um, Denmark. So a variety of countries have become members. We are a relatively young organization and just completed our strategic planning. And I recently was elected president and Sue Whitney also from the ANPT is vice president. So Sue and I were members of this group since its inception. It formed at WCPT in Vancouver, Canada. And really, our goal is to try to connect the neuro-PT communities around the globe. There are countries with many resources and countries without any resources. And so our hope is that we can share those resources and then develop new resources as needed by the, the international community. We're not looking to duplicate the work that's already being done. So it will be really important for us to know what the degenerative diseases group is doing mm -hmm. and what resources they have that they would share. So for example, if these podcasts are something that you guys post on the website and are freely available, it may be of interest for them to be heard, not just by the ANPT members and the DDSIG members, but by the IMPA community. Yeah, and they are on our website, which will give you this, the information at the end, and they're available to anybody, so yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that certainly the Academy has been, um, you know, has had it in its strategic plan to sort of be the leader of, of developing educational resources and guidelines and all of that stuff, so, so our goal is to share them. Now, um, the INPA has two pilot subgroups or specialty interest groups similar to the academy. Sorry for all the alphabets things. We're like going like 
back and forth, but we have a movement disorder subgroup and it's uh, literally was vote approved um, in May. So it's being um, developed in, in the sense that it's, it's structured, it's being developed and its mission and its vision will align with the larger organization. So really its goal will be to do connecting. And so I couldn't be more excited about that. I've always felt that it's important for us to be part of the global community, that we have a lot to contribute. We also have a lot to learn. A lot to I mean, learn, yeah. I, I go to a new country. I'm just blown away by expertise. I was recently in Brazil and you know, the level of physiotherapy there is, is tremendous. And the number of people working in the area of degenerative diseases in Brazil is huge. So if, if only what we know and they know can come together, right, we could just, we could really build an international community that's very credible in physical therapy. So it's, it's nice that we have this degenerative diseases group. A little bit about the history of that is that there was a European Parkinson's disease group and they disbanded so that they could be part of IMPA. So rather than creating a European wide group, they said, let's not do that. Let's, let's discontinue that group and let's merge with IMPA. So now that subgroup is part of a larger community, but they had already worked very carefully to unify a lot of people in Europe to work around these health conditions. So that's cool. So that's an already formed group that's kind of launching, helping to launch this one. Exactly. It will be more of a worldwide presence. That, that's the goal. And Mariela Graciano, who is an Argentinian, but she lives in Luxembourg, is leading that group. Um, and she led that European group. So she comes with a lot of experience. So ideally, what would be awesome is if there was somebody from the DD SIG that wanted to liaise with that group so that there would be a regular communication between your group that's so strong and so well organized and their and their group. Um, and you know, and it would be the beginning of being able to share information and share resources and and partner and doing fun things, right? Because I think we all have a very similar mission. It's just it's just broadening it out of just being US centric and having it be more more world focused. And the deeper that I get into this stuff, the more I realize that, you know, people working at those higher levels are really doing a lot of interesting international stuff and collaboration. And, and for us, I love this idea of liaising with this group too, because for us to be able to bring that to our members, sort of communicate to our members, it doesn't mean that they all have to be involved in it, but they would at least hear about it and know what's going on. And, you know, again, having those shared resources, I mean, I'm sure that there's resources out there that we would love to utilize and have, and people are willing to share. So yeah, I think it sounds fabulous. Well, Judy, it's great to get this information from you. And I think, you know, the fact that we have a relationship with you, we can keep in touch and, and maybe um, try to get in touch with some of those other folks so we can keep our members up to date. So I think our members can look forward to information and updates and that from and some of our other ways that we reach out like our new and noteworthy emails i know you guys have a lot of cool stuff so well um, thank you we try no really i mean it's really appreciated so we've talked about a lot of things that that you're doing both uh sort of professionally in the lab and then also internationally what about like when you're not working you do you do some fun stuff I do. 
Um, so I have two children. I have adult children. So I really do like hanging out with my kids. They turned out okay. Uh, so they're really good company. And that's the goal, right? Well, you never know what's going to happen, right? You're yeah. pretty curious about the whole parenting thing. You just hope you don't mess up too badly. But I think we did okay. Um, so I, I do enjoy, I enjoy, obviously I enjoy them and I enjoy, you know, my husband. Um, and, um, I have a 90 year old mom and I like to spend time with her. Uh, I feel very fortunate that I have a parent that's lived this long. Um, and she's just a wise and wonderful woman. So I, I do love spending time with my mom. And then like for me, um, I practice yoga. I recently completed yoga teacher training. And I really loved it. It was really inspiring and transforming sort of on a personal level. Um, and I meditate and I garden and I hike. We're like really kind of crunchy little stereotype of Judy Deutsch. But those are the things I like to do. Um, and they make me very happy. And I'm a competitive swimmer. So I enjoy swimming for, you know, for sport. So, wow. That's great. That's a great, that's a great activity. I think as people. Yeah, um, get old. <laughs> I know I you're going to do that. It's not. You, you still need to do some weight bearing, but just from a cardiovascular perspective, I think it's a, it's fun. <laughs> it's true. I, I still run, but my running can't even be called running anymore. So yeah. What are you going to do? Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. All right. Well, Judy, this was great conversation. I'd like to thank you for joining us today and, and uh, sharing your wisdom with us. And I hope that at some point in the future, you'll be willing to come back and talk to us again. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. We'd like to thank our volunteers this evening, Michelle Cordovi, Sonali Sethi, and Apurva Zawar. This episode was edited by Sarah Crandall with help from Mackenzie Wilson and Katie Hendren. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. And so the other thing is that we usually include bloopers. That's fine. And what's your official title there? My official title? Queen. <laughs> I actually had a sash um, that I wore when I worked in the brain trauma unit. Well, my husband runs marathons, so it's kind of annoying, but whatever. I go yeah. and I run a little bit around the block and he runs a marathon. Yeah, I'm familiar with the phenomenon. Might be a little slower than it used to be. Oh my goodness. It is. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Whatever. Judy, I think this conversation's great. I think, you know, we're doing a good job. We're just going to ask that you don't move. Try oh, not to move right. as much in your, because you're coming, fading in and out. <laughs> I'm giving you a vestibular stimulation. <laughs> Can you stop doing that thing that you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> I'll try. I don't feel deprived or anything. Yeah. Okay. I don't be like, oh my God, those DD people, they didn't let me say this. Thanks to all of the mute ones over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>